0: I'm KS Garner, and you're listening to the Solo NerdBread Podcast. In this episode, I'll be summarizing the SNES pixel era, relying heavily on the unofficial SNES pixel book by Robert Bennett and Christine Bauer. The pixel book contains hundreds of exclusive images, screenshots, maps, and articles about video game classics conceived during the pixel game era. As in the book, games are categorized by the trends that created them instead of the genres. First up, action-adventure and RPGs led by The Legend of Zelda. Those more in favor of a more approachable, action-centric, arcade-style sort of game went straight for the Super Nintendo gamepad, so it made sense to offer console players a game concept mixing these two worlds, a genre that combines the mechanisms of real-time action titles with the narrative pen and paper worlds of a role-playing game. Although Nintendo already offered a great solution in the first episode of The Legend of Zelda in 1986 for the 8-bit NES, the genre pattern was only properly defined in 1991, when The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past became the blueprint for generations to come and inspired many imitators. A typical element of most entries in the genre is the RPG-like viewpoint, However, Zelda is the only 16-bit adventure offering an authentic perspective. Dungeons and other indoor levels in A Link to the Past offer smartly composed views from above with lines converging to a common vanishing point. That way, it's easy to decipher which object is under, over, or next to another. Probably more important than the perspective itself is the way it's used for the implementation of various game mechanisms in the adventure. In a role-playing game, characters and graphics are placeholders for rule mechanisms that decide the result of various actions using formula and random number generators. Real-time adventurers, on the other hand, use the logic of what you see is what you get by combining the graphical elements with sort of full-contact logic and in-game physics. In this discipline, the genre Zelda is the 16-bit reference. In A Link to the Past, almost every object can be touched or shoved. Even the enemies tumble and bounce like solid objects if hero Link collides with them or hits them with his sword. Since the game is using elements like gravity, haptics, and physical casualty, we can plan our moves logically. After all, Zelda employs mechanisms from our own reality, mechanisms we're used to thinking about an approach the series still employs today. The Zelda series revolutionized the way real-world principles of cause and effect are transported into genre design. Even in battle, Zelda and most of its genre cousins use this principle, the collision with enemies, their weapons, or projectiles, which is the cause. In an action game, always create a direct reaction, the effect. Our performance in battle is directly influenced by our gameplay skills. To avoid fireballs, arrows, and other dangers, we need to react quickly and with anticipation. We need to recall our collected experience in a fast, reflexive manner. Other elements are used as gatekeepers and locks. Here the hero often needs new skills to advance to another part of the game world, but these talents aren't easily accessible. Instead, they are the result of newly found tools and equipment pieces, in-game artifacts based on haptics, connected with the playing experience based on the physical model, like Zora's flippers in A Link to the Past, which are used to cross and explore waterways that were inaccessible before. Through Nintendo's efforts to connect tools and their gameplay mechanics to the surroundings of the hero, The breakdown of the Zelda world of Hyrule into the element-based areas like fire, water, earth, and air can be explained. Each player has an idea how these elements work and interact, how they influence items or the player's character itself. Such Such design decisions make the world of the game real and tangible. During this era, characters couldn't be more than 64 by 64 pixels in size. Certain tricks had to be utilized for anything bigger. One approach can be seen with the sand worm from A Link to the Past. The creature is made of many connected ball-shaped sprite elements moving, according to the various actions, in more or less offset fashion to one another. This way, the illusion of a worm-like creature shooting out of the sand and quickly disappearing again is created. Another trick is placing a large creature far away from the hero as a background graphic as is in the case of Soul Blazer, with the final boss, T- uh, Death Toll, initially Death Toll was a teleporting mage, but then transformed into a massive demon, blasting a spray of fiery bombs and projectiles at the hero, all the while never moving. When playing with pencil, paper, and dice, all these things happened in the minds of the players, but during the 80s and 90s, the CPU and computers and game consoles started handling these tasks. It replaces the game master by showing the surroundings on screen. It interprets the rules, does all the calculations, and instead of dice, uses digital random number generations. As computers of the early 80s only had rudimentary graphical capabilities, the role playing game is a perfect fit for ports and interpretations. Role players are used to relying on their imagination to work their way through data and numbers. And nobody minded that the early works in the genre only used simple sets of symbols and monochrome images and brought, at best, abstract worlds to the screen. In Japan, however, development of the RPG genre takes the exact opposite direction. Before the mid-80s, pen and paper RPGs were virtually unknown. The digital RPG was a gateway drug. Over time, thanks to their growing popularity, these turned into various local pen and paper games and some belated ports of Western tabletop role-playing game titles. At the same time, so-called replays became popular. Meticulously recorded tabletop sessions later sold as books, including banter during breaks, curses, and debates about rules. The most famous replay is probably the Record of the DOS War franchise, which is originally based on a campaign of Dungeons and Dragons. These replays also influenced the development of Japanese RPGs for consoles and home computers, just like the Western computer RPGs Ultima and Wizardry, both of which were ported to 8-bit systems like the Fanacom NES and Fujitsu FM Town's home computer. For the release of the first Dungeon quest Dragon Quest on Nintendo's 8-bit machine, Enix delivered the blueprint for Japanese-style role-playing games by combining the top-down exploration of Ultima with the first-person turn-based battles of wizardry. A distinctive feature that distinguishes these early JRPGs from their European and American cousins is the nature of the heroes. While Western role-playing designers offer editors that players can use to roll their characters just like in pen and paper RPGs. Dragon Quest and its descendants present a ready-made hero. Like in a replay, these come with their own backstory and experience, and thanks to a wealth of dialogue boxes and often tragic storyline. This can be seen in a fourth Final Fantasy on SNES. Enix's former rival, Squaresoft, manages to stage a theater-like narration and sets an important storytelling benchmark for the whole genre. The linear narrative structure contrasts with the relatively open and often discovery-centric role-playing games for home computers from the West. The comparatively pure rule set of the school of Dragon Quest, on the other hand, is born of a desire to not confront the player using a controller with a rather small amount of buttons, with a mass of menus and stats that would require a mouse and keyboard to be at least somewhat manageable. While Western developers slowly said goodbye to typical pen and paper elements such as random encounters and let players freely explore three-dimensional catacombs such as in 1992's Ultima Underworld, RPGs made in Japan stayed true to their roots. Like in the early days, super-deformed two-dimensional sprites marched over lovingly pixelated world maps. And although 16-bit JRPGs are a rather conservative bunch in terms of presentation and technology, more and more Western players leave the Ultima, Wizardry, Might and Magic, or Digital AD&D adventures behind because they prefer games like Final Fantasy IV, Lufia, Chrono Trigger, and Breath of Fire. What Eastern heavyweights lack in terms of technical trickery, they make up with gripping narratives, unusual design ideas, and comparatively approachable game design. Now, onto the platform genre led by Super Mario. For Nintendo's SNES, the 6-bit era was defined by many genres, but none of them dominated the field like the platformer. Between 1991 and 1996, the genre produced timeless classics as well as licensed junk. The 16-bit generation basically knew two ways of movement horizontal, and vertical. Action-adventures, role-playing games, and various shoot-em-ups combine them to allow their heroes to explore their surroundings in a quasi-bird's-eye view, but usually there's only one logical perspective for the majority of game characters, the side-on-view, and so they speed along horizontal planes, leap across deep chasms, or gain height with brief jumping maneuvers, hop-by-hop, platform-by-platform. This style of movement, running and jumping, as well as the required level elements or platforms, inform the two most common descriptions of the genre, jump and run or platform game, also known as the platformer. Another advantage of the often bright and friendly genre is its approachability and therefore its mass marketing appeal. Still, many of the 16-bit platformers are anything but a cakewalk, Many games attempted to lure in younger players with licensed characters from TV cartoons and Disney movies, but somewhat contrarily, they're frustratingly difficult. On top of that, battery backup, a standard feature for sprawling action adventures and role-playing games, isn't very common. But the adventure that would define the genre took place in 1990 on the Super Nintendo Super Mario World. That is the first platformer that works with the player rather than against them. While battery backup makes returning to the game easier, it's the gently rising learning curve that makes the game so exceptional. The first few levels of Super Mario World are considered a masterpiece in teaching players the mechanisms of a game in a gentle and unobtrusive manner. The player isn't presented with any notable challenges until the corresponding gameplay element is taught in a playful fashion. That way, Mario, or better, Super Mario, breaks an unwritten paradigm that forced game heroes to suffer through an internal and unfair martyrdom inflicted on them by relationship to their arcade roots. Although arcade games are all about motivating and entertaining players, they're designed to get coins into the machine at a regular interval. The player's reward is extra lives or continues. In 1990, Super Mario World was a role model in terms of persistence and approachability, and a whole generation of platform games took note. However, many fall into the graphics trap. To do a prominent game, a movie license, justice or to lure in players with playful imagery, many developers primarily place their bets on visual qualities. Smooth, often cartoony animations, finely nuanced color palettes, or scans of complex hand-painted artwork. At the time, there were no really established design conventions. The developers had to learn how to utilize a huge color palette without forgetting the rules of stable game design. In many games of the day, important level elements drown in vaguely drawn or overly detailed landscapes. There are barely visible climbing vines indiscernible hazards and level ethics unfairly hidden in the general pixel chaos that drive players insane. On the other hand, not every platform hero is as family friendly as the infamous plumber and cute cartoony friends alike. Coming from the genre, platform action combine the virtues of a jump and run hero with the firepower of an action icon. Characters like Mega Man or the mercenaries of Contra 3 Alien Wars wield some heavy-duty ordnance, so making improvements to their equipment is just as important a gameplay element as their counterparts in the classic shoot 'em up genre. These titles still belong in their own genre, though thanks to their movement mechanics and graphics. They are different from games like Spaceship Shooters that sometimes take the action into vertical or even three-dimensional directions. Run-and-gun or jump-and-shoot games are mostly bound to a linear horizontal direction. Short flight sequences through scrolling backgrounds are familiar territory for the heroes of the jump-and-shoot genre too. In Konami's Cybernator, for example, they sometimes serve as extended jump sequences to traverse huge high-tech landscapes with speed, or even rush through the fully-fledged shooter levels. That sort of agility is a nice contrast to the tough platform action sequences and the more ponderous movement of the Steel Mecha Colossus. Increased mobility also plays a big role in Capcom's Mega Man games. Just like the series' original hero Mega, his friend X also navigates through the different game worlds, collecting upgrades to become faster, stronger, and more agile. Depending on the chronological order, the android visits these levels, including an icy world controlled by the pa- the boss penguin, a dense forest, and gigantic underground laboratory. The boss encounters are balanced to be either easier or harder to beat. That way, Capcom creates the sense of an open world and act- an adventure-like interdependence in the daily life of the artificial man. Compared to that, Konami's vampire hunters are fairly limited in terms of attack range. In Super Castlevania IV and Vampire's Kiss, the Belmont clan is taxed twice with cremating the Super Bloodsucker Dracula. Even though the heroes have only a small assortment of long distance attacks, they still love to swing their whips in combat against monsters, and in the case of Super Castlevania IV, in eight different directions. Building on this premise, the gameplay is focused on precise attacks and movement, which leads the Castlevania games feeling more like platformers rather than pure action games. As a result, they introduced a new kind of video game hero, somewhere between the trick-or-happy protagonists of the shooter genre, the precisely timed martial arts attacks of the fighting game heroes, and the finely timed movements of the jump and run faction. The requirement for the origins of the platform adventure in many modern gaming heroes, especially agile action experts like Lawcroft Croft and Nathan Drake, owe them much of their existence. After all, before the puzzles can be solved, movement skills inevitably need to be mastered. A third platform subgenre are platform adventures, which are mostly played from a side-on viewpoint regularly know only one direction, straight ahead. The direction of movement is predetermined. The player's attention is always focused on the next conflict, no matter if it's a fight against an enemy or the survival of an especially mean jump sequence. Most platform adventures also keep at least somewhat to that design structure. Another World or Flashback moves straight from screen to screen, which are often connected through riddles about various objects or battles. The game segments in Silicone and Synapses, The Lost Vikings, on the other hand, are a bit more expansive. Again, it's all about leaving each level. The challenge is only completed successfully when the player manages to solve the complex riddle constructs. But in order to do so, the different skills of the three Viking characters need to be combined. The studio, known today as the immensely successful Blizzard, Already shows what it's especially good at designing weird characters with individual talents. The virtue that serves modern million sellers such as Overwatch today was professionally cultivated in the 16 bit era. The subgenre of this jump centric type of adventure made its most important leap with the Meteoroid series. The futuristic adventures of space warrior Seamus Aaron broadened the scope of the side-scrolling adventure in a similar fashion as The Legend of Zelda did for its own genre. Zelda is about finding objects and acquiring new skills, which led to previously sealed off areas. The game world of Meteoroid is, at least in theory, completely open from the beginning, but is subdivided by blocked off passages. That principle is still in use today in various games and genres. Series like Crystal Dynamics Legacy of Kain the Tomb Raider games and even Darksiders all employ the logic of Metroid. Many indie games take on the design specs of the classic in general. While Meteoroid itself is played from a first-person perspective nowadays, protagonists of indie adventures run and jump through sprawling, complex, horizontal scrolling-level constructions in the style of the classics. Even series that made their start as platform action titles like Konami's Castlevania got a taste of adventure early on. Since the series' successful 2D PlayStation debut in Symphony of the Night, the developers have shepherded their vampire hunters through complex, meteoroidvania-style labyrinths. Although the design logic of the platform subgenre can well be adapted to expensive 3D worlds, it's the cosmos of 2D games that defines the idiosyncrasies sequences of the genre. As characters are shown from the side view instead of from the top, the player feels closer to the action and more directly involved. That's why the various genre skills are prompted with more emphasis. Metroidvania games ask the player to quickly react, think of battle tactics in seconds, and solve complex puzzles. That combination probably makes them the most demanding Adventure subgenre of the 16 bit era. In the early 90s, whenever a developer wanted to really show what they were technically capable of, they would make a shooting game. In 1990, the shooter genre was right in its prime, with formidable Laser Infernos on Mega Drive and PC Engine regularly trying to outdo each other. Of course, Konami and Irem wanted to get in on the act with Super R Type 1 and Gradius 3 on the fresh and modern Nintendo hardware, and they stumbled right out of the gate. Beautiful pixel art and lavish special effects clashed with stuttering graphics and bad slowdown. Thanks to its slowly clocked processor, the new Nintendo system was decried as an abject failure for fast action games. Often, whole scenarios were borrowed from animated shows. Neo Tokyo, the setting of Akira, found its way into the background of more than once More of more than one action inverno. Meanwhile, the most important western inspiration is Swiss artist H.R. Geiger and his disturbing design of the alien Xenomorph. Hardly any shooters abstain from putting in a level or a boss pattern after his unique biomechanical style. Pixel artists drew more and more complex scenery and programmers competed to see who could put more objects on screen without slowdown. But the age of Fast and Furious space action was drawing to a close. New genres, primarily the 2D fight game, dominated the arcades and rapidly expanded into the home console market. The games of the Super Nintendo made it clear that not every shooting game needs to be all about spaceships and not every shooter needs to rely on horizontal or vertical scrolling. The suburban teenagers of LucasArts' Zombies Ate My Neighbors discover their monster-infested world on foot. The mighty mecha warrior stomps into the depth of the screen and the sci-fi cowboys of the cult hit Wild Guns run along the bottom of the screen taking aim at their enemies via crosshairs. Along these different shooting games, Western studios often did remarkable work. While the classical spaceship shooter rested firmly in Japanese hands, Western teams often tried their own approach to the lead and lasers subject. In the UK, the Bitmap Brothers brought the metallic stylings of their home computer shooters to the Super Nintendo in the shape of the Chaos Engine or Soldiers of Fortune in the U.S., while Origin's Wing Commander not only puts the player in the cockpit, but also allows for and encourages communication with other pilots. Games about shooting are most often aimed at experienced players with lightning-fast reflexes, Keen perception and a good memory. In contrast to platformers, shooting games are still pretty close to their arcade roots and lay down a stern challenge. An experienced player may finish a shooting game within 20-30 minutes, but to achieve this level of skill, many hours of playing are required. However, the Super Nintendo wasn't all about happy hopping and jumping. Nintendo's 16-bit machine also played host to some great fistfights either one-on-one or as a bruising brawl against whole waves of enemies. Only in the 16-bit generation did these digital duels really come into their own. Capcom's Final Fight proved how much large, chunky sprites and juicy sounds can add to a fierce fighting game. The joy of fighting was always the most important aspect. Almost all of the wild brawls of the Super Nintendo era. 4 went splattering blood, gore, and exploding bodies. Fighters hit hard, but it rarely got really unpleasantly brutal. Even if Capcom's Knights of the Round did work their enemies over with swords, axes, and spears. That's not only due to Nintendo's rigid policies in terms of blood and violence, it's also a question of the 90's zeitgeist. In contrast to early fighters, games of the 90's started to make the move into the third dimension. The large sprites were usually seen from the side, but they often also moved into the depth of the screen. Most of the time, they lacked the corresponding animation, but thanks to the adequate stylization we brought into the relative three-dimensionality of Mike Hager, the Ninja Turtles, or Capcom's Knights. We were also willing to forgive the simplicity of the genre, slick presentation, hard-hitting effects, And the two-player modes made up for simple boss strategies lacked attack variety and AI characters acting in an often unfair manner. But when Capcom managed to elevate the simple brawler to new heights, the action experts from Osaka made the genre they just reinvented pretty much obsolete. Street Fighter II made the digital duel one of the most important genres for the next couple of years. In Street Fighter II, victory isn't achieved by simply hammering the buttons as fast as possible. Only players who know the ins and outs of their characters, who are familiar with their special attacks, and are aware of their opponent's actions or know the right counter maneuvers are capable of fighting at an adequate level. That sort of readability is an effect of good fighting games learned from Japanese animation, which had reached its hand-drawn zenith in the late 80s just like the action anime popular back then console and arcade fighters don't put emphasis on fluent motion the way a disney production does instead they focus on a few but very clear and extremely dynamic keyframes dynamic poses make for mighty hits and a remarkably satisfying playing experience now here are some additional subgenres to round out the era first we have puzzles Many of SNES's puzzle game concepts are based on the classic falling block title Tetris. Despite some complex licensing shenanigans, the Pocket version made Nintendo's handheld console Game Boy an instant hit in 1989 and was the first digital game that also lured non-gamers into the fray. Thanks to its concept, which is based on the geometrical puzzle game Pentomino, Tetris is wonderfully approachable and easy to understand. The idea of a digital puzzle or a casual game isn't really new. Apart from early shooting and dexterity games, many of the games finding their way to the screen during the early days of the medium are puzzles that are modified versions of sports and children's games. Their rules are particularly easy to adapt and their concepts based on simple forms are a perfect fit for the rudimentary presentation of early entertainment systems. According, accordingly, a game like Tetris is a great fit for the Game Boy in its blurry monochrome display, which can show simple shapes but has a more difficult time with complex illustrations. Things are different on SNES, however. Even in its early days, Nintendo's 16-bit machine is considered a miracle in terms of graphics and effects, able to compete with modern VGA-equipped PCs put arcade quality games on the TV screen at home, and also match the expensive coin ops in terms of acoustics. Nintendo does its best to integrate the modified Tetris concept into their own brand universe using colorful graphics and animation. Tetris Attack, for example, is augmented with cute Yoshi graphics while the player gets to grips with lines of blocks making their way from bottom to top by exchanging elements Lying next to each other and align, aligning similar colors. The background music is a match as well. As long as the block rows remain relaxed in the lower third of the screen, almost meditative melodies make the player feel soothed and secure. But the further the blocks get to the upper corners of the playing field, the quicker the digital musicians hit the notes, not only in order to signify the urgency of the block removal, but also to toy skillfully with the player's emotions. Other variations of Nintendo's Tetris-inspired games during this era include Yoshi's Cookie, Wario's Woods, and Dr. Mario. Onto simulations. Building cities, commanding armies, flying through the air, or creating pieces of art. For a long time, all that was the domain of the home computer. Even in the early days of the SNES, Nintendo made it clear that its new 16-bit hardware offered quite a few experiences on the more cerebral side of things. Their secret weapon was SimCity. Will Wright's wonderfully creative city-building simulator had been a hit on home computers a couple of years before, and the port made by none other than Nintendo itself is probably probably the most lovingly crafted version of the grandfather of digital city planning. Quinette's Razor Tax the player with leading whole people, this time using divine powers and occasional action scenes. After fighting monsters, it's time to settle the land. That's the key concept behind ActRaiser. It won the hearts of the Nintendo community and is a unique proposition even today. No other game dared to try such an exciting mix of genres. At this time, almost all games with tactical elements share a common camera perspective, Just as smart city planners and shrewd strategists brood over detailed maps, the 16-bit schemer surveys the playing field from above. What the strict bird's eye view lacks in terms of detail, it easily makes up for with huge gain in clarity. Nintendo also pursued a completely different direction even back then. SimCity is a creative and original, but with Mario Paint, the Japanese developer completely removes all semblance of goals and challenges. Instead of making a typical game, they craft a creative art package that invited players to draw and animate using the bundled mouse accessory. There is one game in the Super Nintendo's library, however, that's especially peaceful. Harvest Moon, or Story of Seasons in Japan, was released rather late in the 16-bit machine's life cycle and also allows players to relive the joys and labors of a rural life. At first glance, the game's detailed scenery and the slightly skewed camera perspective reminds us of a typical adventure in the style of the Zelda series, but Harvest Moon established a whole new genre. Lastly, we have sports. Originally, game ideas of a sporting nature were among the easiest to adapt to the electronic video game format. Just having to maneuver a chunky, pixelated ball across the screen using abstract bats or paddles in the face of technical limitations. That seemed comparatively easy. An added bonus is the fact that sports games are rather easy to market since the majority of potential customers are already familiar with the rules. In the USA, high-quality ports of popular sports disciplines were connected to the success of the console hardware of the 8-bit era, the popular NES football sim Tecmo Bowl. Being the first game released in stores, with an official license of the NFL PA League and sporting real NFL stars was one of the reasons for the popularity of Tecmo's interpretation of American football. It kicked off a trend that would play an ever-growing role during the SNES era. Sports games, which before had been simple but a fun context of skill, now turned into complex, hardcore simulations with increasingly realistic physics, as well as a roster of real-life players, leagues, stadiums, or cars. Sports games were on the verge of becoming a true mass-market phenomenon, and it was important to have popular, recognizable brand names on board. But this trend towards official licenses wasn't always a good thing. Games like the ESPN series, which covered mostly baseball and hockey, profited from a licensed portfolio of the TV station of the same name, but in terms of gameplay, often slow muddled of sprites and pixels can be alarmingly weak. The difficulty in sorting sports games into clear design directions is not only caused by many different disciplines, but also the many different modes of presentation. Back then, just as it is today, sometimes game designers rely on fixed camera perspectives in order to provide a good view of the player. They show their athletes from a top-down perspective from a side-on view or fully frontal or they might try their hand at adventurous 3d experiments but ruins any sort of player orientation on the other hand sporting events involving two or four wheels and taking place on asphalt are especially close to 3d graphics developers of racing games often kept their distance from the whole licensing mess and instead pay close attention to look and gameplay which wasn't an easy task in the early days of 3D graphics. The few really fun titles, such as Nintendo's multiplayer SmackDown Super Mario Kart, and the lightning-fast F-Zero, rely on textured 7-mode planes and sprite vehicles drawn from various perspectives, which changed depending on the camera from British developer Argonaut Studios, which gained its polygon chops for Star Fox. The cars of Stunt Race FX Endowed with cute faces, anticipated the aesthetics of Pixar's cars and offered a small taste of what racing fans could expect in the upcoming console generation. On the Saturn, PlayStation, and Nintendo 64, racing became one of the most popular genres far ahead of the other tests of competence such as soccer, baseball, football, and tennis. Alright, so there you have it, a summary of the SNES Pixel Era, relying heavily on the unofficial SNES Pixel Book by Robert Dennert and Christine Bauer. The Pixel Book contains hundreds of exclusive images, screenshots, maps, and articles about video game classics conceived during the Pixel Game Era. I highly recommend art book collectors, video game connoisseurs, and fans alike to purchase this book if they can. All of the contributors and researchers do a thorough job providing a detailed and informative description of games conceived, sold, and even evolved during this pixelated era I'm sure many gamers enjoy to this day. Again, I'm K.S. Garner, and you have been listening to the Solo Nerdberg Podcast. Thank you.